This is a presentation of Redemption Bible Church. For more information, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the start of something new. We thank you for rhythms in our lives because our, our lives get so crazy and busy and chaotic. They, they go off track this way and that way, and these rhythms bring us back. They bring us back to you. And so, God, I pray that even um, the idea of a calendar of liturgy, God, that we wouldn't see it as something merely historical or traditional and most definitely not mechanical, but that we would see it as formational, that we would see it pointing us to you and to what you have done for us in and through Jesus, in whose name we pray in one loud voice together, amen. Silence and waiting are two of the most uncomfortable human experiences, aren't they? All right, they leave us feeling confused, like, what is Pastor Ash doing? <laughs> you were, hopefully, you were a little bit worried, like, is he okay? And you're wondering, like, is this ever going to end? Like, I get we've been doing silence more at the end of the sermon, but this is nuts. Is he ever going to start? And yet, I think that awkward silence, and it was awkward, wasn't it? Not for me, but for you. And that, uh, that uncomfortable waiting, like your skin was beginning to crawl, I think it so perfectly captures the essence of the Advent season. See, as a, as a, a season of lived remembrance, we enter into and remember how Israel waited. Not just, not just a few seconds, but for a few thousand years for the promised Messiah, for, for Christ to come for that promised offspring of Eve who would come and crush the head of Satan. But after God's promise to Malachi, and we looked at the prophet Malachi a few years ago in a, in a, in a sermon series, after the promise to Malachi of a, of a messenger, of a prophet who would prepare the way for the Lord's coming, Israel waited over 400 years in silence with no word from God. And it left them feeling confused, like, well, what is God doing? It left them feeling worried, like, is he still there? Does he, does he still care? And it left them wondering if Messiah would ever come. And as the, the days grow shorter and the, and the darkness takes over at, like, can we be honest, at, like, noon, the sun's going to set in, like, a half hour, thanks to daylight savings time. We look out into the darkness that has shrouded our world, and it leaves us feeling lost and alone and, and afraid at times. It leaves us confused and worried, and like Israel, we're left wondering, like, what is God doing? Doesn't he see all that's going on? Like, is God still there? Does God still care? And will the light ever shine again? That's what Advent is. 
Advent for coming from the Latin word meaning arrival or coming. It serves as a reminder that the one who has come will come again. Amen? That's what makes Advent good news. But Advent, Advent isn't 24 days to prepare for Christmas. I think we've missed what Advent is. Uh, you know what, what Christmas does to Thanksgiving in the secular world? Like it just pushes Thanksgiving right out the door. Christmas does the same to Advent in the church. We go from Thanksgiving straight over to Christmas. We just call it Advent with some fancy calendars and chocolates. Or a Lego Advent calendar. That was a good one one year, wasn't it? Oh, see, Advent is a season of, of silent reflection and waiting, of longing and anticipation. And as a lived remembrance, we enter into Israel's waiting for the Christ to come in his first Advent by waiting for his promised return in his second Advent. And we're going to spend the Advent season this year in the opening two chapters of Luke's gospel in a series that we are calling Good News of Great Joy. And we're going to begin by entering into the story of Israel's waiting for good news. As 400 years of silence and waiting come to an end with God speaking to his people yet again and once again here in Luke 1. And so let's take out our Bibles, if you haven't already, open to the, the New Testament book of Luke, Matthew, Mark, and then Luke. We're going to be in chapter 1, and we're going to enter into this story together, a story that plays out over three scenes, over three acts, and helps us learn how to wait. And so we enter into this opening scene that, that helps us experience our waiting on God. As Luke, he, he sets the stage to the story here in the beginning, it, a story that takes place during the reign of King Herod, who ruled over the land of Judea, and whose reign lasted until about 4 BC. And then he introduces us to the characters, to the two main characters, first to Zechariah, who was a priest, meaning he was a, a descendant of Aaron, the brother of Moses, and he was of the division of Abijah. And one of the 24 divisions that existed. And then he introduces us to his wife, Elizabeth, who he says was also a descendant of Aaron. And not only was this couple well-respected because of their heritage, he says that they were both righteous before God. Now, he's not saying that they were without sin. He's not referring to their righteous standing, as Paul later refers to it, but righteous living. He explains, saying that they were walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord, right? living in faithful obedience to the Mosaic law, observing and obeying all that God had commanded of them. But in spite of their respected status, in spite of their righteous living, he says in verse 7 that they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Infertility at this time was viewed as a, a sign of shame, even a, a result of a divine curse for disobedience based on the book of Deuteronomy. But that wasn't the case for Zechariah and Elizabeth, was it? Because they were both righteous before God. This couple, they should have been grandparents by now, great-grandparents even. They, their house should have been filled with the sound of, of children laughing and playing and running all over. It should sound like redemption does when service ends, and we got kids running around all over. But it didn't. Instead, it was silent, and it was empty. And Zechariah, they, they pray every month, waiting decades for a child who, who, who never came. 
And because of their age, they'd all but given up hope in having a child. And I get it. You know, after we lost our first child, we thought we might not ever be parents. And and every month that passed by, every turn of the calendar was another reminder of our unanswered prayer to God. To the point that I remember one Mother's Day, um, Jill and I, we were up front praying over people at the end of service. And our pastor at the time, Ryan, he came up and he asked if he could pray over us and to pray for a baby. And I remember saying to him, sure, whatever, it ain't going to do any good though. Like, I wasn't angry at God. I had, I had gone through that. I was at the point that I'd just given up hope. And I think we're all waiting on God for something, aren't we? We're waiting on, on God to move. We're waiting on God to answer a prayer. You're, you're waiting on God to, to do something or to, or to give you something. And, and some of you may still be clinging on to hope, but others of you, others of you may be, you've given up. And the thing is, is that when we give up hope for what God can do, it's easy to just give up on hope on God altogether, isn't it? And when we give up hope on God, we turn from God. But not Zechariah and Elizabeth. Even though they'd given up hope for a child, they never gave up hope on God. Right? In spite of their disappointment and their frustration and their unanswered prayers, they continued to trust God, right? walking blamelessly in all his commandments as they waited for what they thought would never come. And by entering into their story of waiting, I think we learn more about our own waiting. We learn three things. We learn many things, but three things we learn. Number one is that waiting reveals what you most desire of God. Right? It reveals what you most desire of God, what it is you want him to do or, or to give you, that thing you don't have, that thing you are waiting on that you most desire. And for Zechariah and Elizabeth, that, that thing that they were waiting on was a, was a child. And so I want to ask you this morning, what is that for you? What are you waiting on God to do? Number two, waiting, it tests your obedience to God. Will you remain faithful while you wait? Well, and what if that thing you're waiting on never comes? Zechariah and Elizabeth, they remained obedient. They remained faithful to God while they waited. And so ask yourself, is your obedience to God, is it dependent on a response from God or is it a response to God? Is your obedience to God conditional? And number three, waiting teaches you to trust God. It teaches reliance as we wait, trusting that God will provide everything that we need. It teaches contentment as we wait, trusting that everything God has provided is enough. And that's what we learn by entering into their story of waiting. We learn more about our own story of waiting. And as we move into the second scene, as with any good three-act play, right, the tension builds. This is the Empire Strikes Back of the story, okay? And we come to the confrontation in the story. I am your father, 
That's not in this story. And if you haven't seen Empire Strikes Back, I totally ruined it for you, but that came out like 800 years ago. No, what we see here is we see in the second act, we see God in our waiting. We, we get a glimpse behind the curtain, so to speak, of what God's doing as we wait. Look down here at verses 8 and 9 with me. Luke writes, Now while Zechariah was serving as a priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and to burn incense. He's like Everett. He got chosen to come up and light the candle this morning and to read scripture. When I hear each of the 24 divisions of priests, they would travel to uh, the temple in Jerusalem for a week, twice a year, to lead the people in worship. And part of their priestly duties was to present the burnt offerings to God twice a day, in the morning and in the afternoon. And, and this was an incredibly high honor for a priest. This was the highlight of their priestly career. This was a, a once-in-a-lifetime experience that not every priest even was able to experience. For me, as a, as a NASCAR fan, my once-in-a-lifetime experience, nobody got up to leave when I said NASCAR fan, bless you. I was a little worried there. Uh, my once-in-a-lifetime experience was the 2007 Daytona 500. The NFL ends its season with its Super Bowl. NASCAR begins it with the Super Bowl. And I was working for Motorola at the time, and my group, we were sponsoring a car in the race. And so uh, the two of us that were there, we got to watch the race from Robbie Gordon's pit in pit road. It was incredible. And if you're like, whatever, it was incredible. Just be excited for me or with me here. And, and we got to see Kevin Harvick cross the finish line, 0 0.02 seconds, two one-hundredths of a second ahead of Mark Martin. But not only that, we saw Clint Boyer coming behind him on his roof, his car's on flames, and he's coming right towards where we're at on Pitt Road. It was incredible. And then that wasn't even the best part. We got to fly home with Robbie on his private jet. Exactly. What? It was a once-in-a-lifetime experience. But the priests, knowing this, it says that they cast lots. They, they, they rolled the die. And what they were doing is they're removing any sort of human element or favoritism into who was selected and putting the selection in God's hands. They didn't view this as random but as divine. And so as the people gathered that afternoon at the temple for prayer, Zechariah carried the incense into the temple, into the holy place. And two assistants would have followed him carrying the burning coals. And they would have set those burning coals on the golden altar. And then they would have left, leaving Zechariah alone. And Zechariah, he, he would have placed the incense on the coals atop of the altar. And then he would have stepped away and he, he would lay down prostrate, praying for his people, interceding for his people, praying for Messiah to come, praying for God to speak yet again. To speak after 400 years of silence. It says in verse 11 that, that as he's praying, as he's laying there in front of the, the altar, there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of the incense next to the candles. And Zechariah, he, he was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. I like, that's not the hallmark description of an angel, is it? Somewhere along the way, we made angels out to be these, these elegant, feminine beings with long, flowing hair. 
Or uh, some are these cute, cuddly little babies that are just a little bit chubby. You just want to pinch them. And, uh, but like, yeah, people don't go, ooh, when they see an angel in Scripture. They go, ah, not ooh. They freak out. They lose their mind. Because I think these guys, I think they resembled something more out of a horror movie than they did out of a Hallmark movie. Calvin paraphrases this saying that they were frightened to the point of collapse. Like they were so afraid they were about to pass out. And not because this cute little pinchy cuddliness walked in, not because of the, the beauty that appeared, but because of this powerful presence that stood in their midst. It was absolutely terrifying. And so three times in these opening two chapters in Luke, we're going to see an angel appear, first to Zechariah, then to Mary, and then to the shepherds. And three times we hear an angel say, do not be afraid. And each time the angel says why they need not be afraid. He doesn't tell us why they were afraid, but we can kind of figure that out. As you look at descriptions of angels in Ezekiel and Isaiah, they got like a billion eyes, they got six wings, they got four heads, like they're going to freak you out a little bit. But the angel, he, he says to Zechariah, he says, do not be afraid. Why? Because your prayer has been heard. God was listening as Zechariah was praying, praying for deliverance, praying for Messiah. And he says, your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John, a name that means God is gracious. Zechariah is like, what, wait, what? Like, you mean that thing I was praying for way back when? You mean that thing I gave up praying for, that thing that's not even possible anymore? And in that moment, I, I, you can see his fear turned into confusion. Right? None of this made any sense to him. It wasn't even what he was praying for then. And the angel continues saying, you will have joy and gladness. This was the good news of great joy he had waited his whole life to hear. But this joy wasn't just for Zechariah because he, the angel says many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord, great because of what God was going to do through this child. And look at what he says next. He says, he must not drink wine or strong drink, meaning this child would be set apart by God, set apart for a unique ministry, taking this lifelong vow, similar to a Nazarite vow taken by Samson. He was set apart by God. Also, he says that he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. He would be filled with the presence and the power of God, meaning he would be equipped by God for this special and unique ministry. But the third thing we see is this wouldn't take place later in life. No, this would take place from his mother's womb. He was chosen by God. Not because of anything he had done. Not because God could see into the future of what John might do. But because of what Paul says in Ephesians 1, that they got chosen before the foundation of the world according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace. Then he goes on and he says in verse 16, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. God picked up right where he left off, speaking the same words he spoke to some 400 years ago. 
the last words of the Old Testament scriptures spoken to the prophet Malachi of a, of a messenger who would prepare a way for the Lord to come, a prophet like Elijah, one who would make ready a people prepared, making them ready by calling them to repentance, to, to turn from their sin and turn back to God, trusting in God pointing them to the one who would provide reconciliation both with God and with each other as God's covenant people. And this one who would make ready a people prepared, he was on his way, meaning Messiah was on his way. Christ is coming. And by entering into the story of Israel's waiting, we see God in our waiting. We, we see God is working in our waiting, don't we? His sovereign hand guiding even the most minuscule of details in the casting of lots in order for Zechariah to come and to meet with Gabriel. But the thing is, is we won't always see God working, will we? We don't always get to see behind the curtain. We don't always get a, a glimpse. We don't always he doesn't always tip his hand to what it is that he's doing and what he's up to. We won't, always, um, we won't always get to see a sign that says road construction ahead, and instead all we know is that we're stuck in traffic and we're not moving anywhere. But that doesn't mean God's not working. Second, we see that God is present in our waiting. He is with us, right? Jesus, Emmanuel, is God with us. He remains with us in his waiting through the presence of his spirit, God, within us. Meaning God, God is not distant. God is here. God is near. Number three, we see that God is listening in our waiting. He not only heard Zechariah's prayer for his people, for, for deliverance, for Messiah there in the, in the holy place as he prayed, he remembered his prayer for his family, for a child a prayer he had probably not prayed for decades. God heard and God remembered Zechariah's prayer. And what I need you to hear is God hears and remembers every one of your prayers, those said, those unsaid. And number four, what we see is that God is faithful, that he will fulfill every promise he has ever made. Not every promise we have wanted him to make, but every promise he has made. Every promise that came from the mouth of God, not those we put into the mouth of God. He'll fulfill every promise he ever made in his time and in his way and according to his will. And then the third scene in the story, it brings about resolution. It brings a response to the conflict. It shows us our waiting and our responding to God. And what we see here is we see how Zechariah responded, we see how Elizabeth responded, and then we're going to see how we should then respond. He says in verse 18, he said, and Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. Right? He doesn't believe that God can do what he said he would do. He, he thinks it is beyond his ability, beyond his power. And so he wants a proof, he wants sign, he wants to know it. And it's easy to point the finger at Zechariah, but again, imagine an 80-year-old man being told he and his 80-year-old wife are about to conceive and have a child. And that like this is going to be the child that God spoke of 400 years ago. I think what it shows us is that the longer we wait, the more skeptical we become. 
it becomes harder to hold on to hope the longer we wait, doesn't it? Like, how can I be sure that you're going to do what you said you would do? How, how can I trust you? That's what he's saying here. But see, when we forget what God has done, we fail to believe what God will do, don't we? When we forget what God has done, when we forget this part of our Bible, we forget what God will do, and we don't believe what God will do. Zechariah, he forgot how God promised Abraham and Sarah a child when they were in their 90s, and how Sarah gave birth to a son, Isaac. Not just them, he forgot the story of, of their kids. He forgot the story of Isaac and Rebekah, who waited for a child as well. He, he forgot about the story of God opening Hannah's womb, and she gave birth to Samuel. And so the angel answers in verse 19, saying, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. He's like, do you not know who I am? I was sent to speak to you. I was sent by God to speak to you. And to bring you this good news of great joy. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until that, the day that these things take place. Because you did not believe my words. You did not believe God's words, which will be fulfilled in their due time. Zechariah was given a sign, wasn't he? But he was given a sign of rebuke for his lack of faith, his lack of trust in God. And then we see what happened outside the temple. It says in verse 21, and the people, they were, they were waiting for Zechariah. And they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And they were waiting for him to come out. They were waiting for him to lead them in the closing benediction, uh, giving them the blessing of Aaron over them. And they're like, it shouldn't have taken this long. No one else took this long this week. And so they were growing concerned. It's sort of like, have you ever gone to the store, and the person with you said, just, you know what, just drop me off. It's just going to be a couple minutes. I just got to get a couple of things. I'll be right back. And so you circle the parking lot. You're like, I'm going to do it. I'm going to go this way so that I can come up, and the passenger side of the car is going to be right there by the door. Okay, they're not there. You circle the parking lot. They said it was going to be a couple minutes. They said to get a couple things. Pretty soon, you've been circling the parking lot for an hour, and you're like, when are they ever going to come out? That's them wondering about Zechariah. He says in verse 22, and when he, when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized something, didn't they? They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, like something happened. And he kept making signs to them, and he, and he remained mute. They, they, knew, they knew something would happen, but they didn't know what happened. Because he couldn't speak, and later on in verse 62, we learned he, he couldn't hear he, he couldn't tell them about the most incredible experience he'd ever had. He couldn't tell them about the 2007 Daytona 500 in his life. He couldn't share the greatest news he had ever heard, that the world had ever heard, that Messiah was coming. And not only couldn't share it with the crowd, he couldn't share it with his wife, and so he went home when his week of service ended. That's how Zechariah responded. How did Elizabeth respond? What, what happened to her? How did, how did she respond? Well, it says in verse 24 that after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach, to take away my shame among the people. 
She was now pregnant with the child that she had prayed decades for. God, he, he took away that shame and that reproach that she was made to feel by others, blaming her for her waiting because of her infertility, as though it was her fault. And why we don't know the reason for secluding herself for those first five months, we know her response. And her response was to worship God. Her response was to give him thanks. Her response was to praise his holy name for this thing she had prayed decades for to finally arrive, this impossible thing to occur. And by entering into their story of waiting, we see both what waiting is and what waiting requires of us. We see what waiting is, three things. We see that waiting is active, don't we? Waiting is active. We don't sit and wait. We live as we wait. We live in faithful obedience to God, worshiping God, serving God, praying to God, living for God, just as Zechariah and Elizabeth did all the decades of their waiting. Waiting is active, but also waiting is patience, trusting in God's timing and his plan, not rushing God along as Abraham did with Hagar before his child came on, not rushing God along, not imposing our schedule on him because to God who exists outside of time, Peter says that a day to God is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. Time means nothing. The 400 years of silent waiting was like that to God. The thousands of years of waiting from the promise made in the Garden of Eden, Eden was like that to God. Henry Nouwen in his book, Finding My Way Home, a, a collection of essays, he writes in his essay, the, the Path of Waiting. He says, the word patience implies the willingness to stay where we are and live the situation out to the full in the belief that something hidden there will manifest itself to us. Patient living means to live actively in the present and wait there. Impatient people expect the real thing to happen somewhere else, and therefore they want to get away from the present situation and go elsewhere. For them, the moment is empty. But patient people dare to stay where they are. Patient waiting teaches contentment with where God has you and with what God has given you. And number three, waiting is open-ended. It's open-ended. It's open to God's will and God's way, praying thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's open to God's plan and God's timing, both the what and the when of God without always knowing the why of God. But that kind of open-ended waiting isn't easy, is it? Because it requires something of us. It requires hope. It requires hope and being open to the possibility that God might actually answer the prayer the way you had hoped, believing in his sovereignty and in his ability to speak things into creation beyond our comprehension. But the longer we wait, the harder it is to hold on to hope, the easier it is to give up hope. And when we give up on hope, we often give up on God. Hear me say, I'm not saying God will give you the thing you prayed for. I'm saying we hold on to hope. But it also requires faith. It requires faith that God will indeed fulfill every promise he has ever made. 
And he'll fulfill those promises, God says, in and through Jesus, the one to whom John pointed to, the one who came to reconcile us to God, to shine a light in the darkness, whose spirit fills our very being. It is this faith, this assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things unseen, the author of Hebrews says, that we hold on to. And so rather than requesting an explanation of how God is going to do what he's going to do the way Zechariah did, we simply give thanks for all God has done the way Elizabeth did. Open-ended waiting requires hope, it requires faith, and it requires trust. Our trust in what God will do is founded on who God is and what God has done. And that means that when you feel as though your prayers are going unanswered, Trusting that God hears our prayers, that he is listening. Trusting that God cares, that he is indeed loving. And when God's ways don't align with your ways, trusting that his ways are higher than our ways, that his thoughts are higher than our thoughts, that what he has in store is ultimately and eternally for our good in his glory. And that when we don't have everything that we wanted in this life, trusting that God has given everything that we need. Because the good news of great joy as we wait during this lived remembrance of the Advent season is that everything we need is found in Jesus. Thanks for listening. For more audio content and information about redemption, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org.